All right, and possibly the most awkward transition. Um, <laughs> it's good. Um, I feel like you guys may be used to that. All right, so, uh, no, it is good to be with you guys. Uh, I look out on a room full of friends, and uh, this is super close. Does this not feel super close to you guys? From here? But anyway, um, so just, just so excited to be with you guys. Like he said, I'm a bivocational pastor, which means a full-time job, and then also a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church in Ireland. Um, you want to know more about that, uh, you can talk to Jesse and he'll fill you in on all the beautifully challenging things about bivocational ministry. So, uh, but no, it is good to be with you. Um, I've been with community groups and some of you guys. I've been working with some of you guys. I've graduated with some of you guys. I've been on other continents with some of you guys, uh, like Miss Barbara in the back. So um, it is good to be amongst friends. Uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 3 today. So kind of what's going on here is all those beautiful songs that we just sung. Um, root back right to what I feel like the Lord was putting on my heart. Um, I got a text from Davis asking if I would speak, and obviously we'd love to do that, look at the schedule and all those kind of good things. And um, immediately I said just a very small prayer of God, you know these people way better than I do. Um, Yes, I know some of them. Uh, have not been with them in a while. Don't know what's going on in the church. How's everything going? Um, But you know them intimately. And what would you have for us today? And uh, immediately, I feel like the Lord gave me Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. And um, I tried to change that a few times just to make sure that, because that was two months ago. Um, so I tried to change that a few times and maybe felt like the Lord was taking it somewhere else. And this is where we landed back on every single time. Um, so I believe the Lord has a word for us today. And um, I'm excited about going through this with you. Um, but let's pray before we do anything else. God, your grace is overwhelming. God, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. God, all those songs that we just sang, God, you deserve the worship from our mouths, and we could sing those every minute of every hour of today, and you would still deserve more. You're that good. You're that faithful. God, your love is more loyal than anything that we deserve. God, often we wave our Christian banners, yet sometimes our hearts are far from you. God, life distracts us. Trials come. Even the good things, God, but life just happens. And in those moments, we don't live in response to who you are and what you've done for us, faithfully like you do. So God, through this text today, Would you teach us? Would you convict us? Would you grow us? Would you encourage us? Father, would you draw us nearer and more deeper to who you are? God, may we live as faithful disciples of yours. God, in response to who you are, what else could we do? So, Father, be glorified. May the words of our mouth and meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, The book of Ephesians is an amazing book, and it is very hard to jump right into the middle of it in chapter 3 without a bunch of context. But uh, So you will go back and study that, and God will overwhelm you with his mercies and his glories. Uh, But basically what's happening here in our text is we are looking at the second prayer of Paul. This is the second prayer we see in the book of Ephesians. The first one is on enlightenment. The the thought of the idea is that Paul builds out this beautiful theology and doctrine of our salvation. 
and he talks about God's grace, and he talks about how he lavishes this grace upon us. The, the original text there is like, like literally God just continues to pour out grace on his people. And then, and then what he does in this prayer in chapter 1 is that, is that he asks God to help them like comprehend with their minds everything that he just said. Because that is a lot, right? And God's grace is good, right? And some people can look at this word and they can see folly, but the, the children of God look at those truths and it just overwhelms them. So this prayer, he wants them to get what they have in Christ. But if you and I are going to be a faithful disciple, if we're going to live in response to who God is and what he does, if we're going to live out all those beautiful songs we just sang, we got to have more than head knowledge. We have to do more than grasp the endless mercies of our God, don't we? So what he does is he continues to build out in Ephesians. He continues to work and build out this beautiful theology of who God is and how we are alive in Christ and all this kind of stuff due to our salvation. And then he prays this beautiful prayer at the end of chapter 3 here before he goes on to telling them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling and goes on to give them some more implications of what that looks like. So, so this text today is literally on the fulcrum. It's on the balance of what he builds out between this beautiful theology, and then how this applies to life. But Paul knows something that you and I need to know deep in us today, that we need God's power if we're going to live as faithful disciples of Christ. It's going to go far past anything we can do humanly. It's going to go far past willpower to be a good Christian person. It's going to go far past religious outward things, Right? If we're going to live as God called us to get, and, and that's what we want, right? Like it's Carpenter's Way. If I accidentally call you Cornerstone, um, no, that's a compliment because um, I love those people desperately. But uh, so Carpenter's Way, if, if, if we want to see God do amazing things in us, and then we want to see amazing, God do amazing things through us to the community, to the nations, to the end of the earth, then we must be faithful disciples of Christ. So as we do this, we're going to look into four marks of a faithful disciple. As we go through this, this is the goal of, there might, there's several things, many, many things that you could list about a faithful disciple of Christ. And all of them could be true. But these four marks that we see in Paul's prayer must be true. We cannot be a faithful disciple of Christ without these four things. So the first thing we're going to look at is a faithful disciple. The first characteristic, the first mark that we see of that in this prayer is humble submission to God's plans and purposes. And you look with me at verse 14 through 15. I read through the NASB. It's also going to be on the screen the whole time uh, as, as we chew up these words together. So humble submission to God's plans and purposes. What we see here, this is not actually in the prayer yet. Paul has not even started praying, and we already can see this. So look at verse 14 and 15 with me. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Right? So context. Paul, this is a prison epistle, which means Paul is a prisoner right now. And you can see from verse 13, right before we started, he's talking to them about not being, uh, losing heart, the tribulations that he's facing, all the stuff that he's going through based on this imprisonment of his, right? And, and you see here something that, that happens. What I want you to notice is that the posture of Paul's prayer life is, is given in the posture of Paul's prayer. Excuse me, the posture of Paul's life is given in the, in the posture of Paul's prayer. So you, you, what you see is you see this humble man, a prisoner, yet joyfully and humbly submitted before the Father. 
You see, because Paul, even though he was a prisoner, no matter if he got beatings or shipwrecks or persecution or eventually martyred for his faith, he knew something, that his life was all for the plans and purposes of God. We don't see Paul complaining when life doesn't go his way. We don't see him doubting God because his life doesn't quite work out the way that he would want it to humanly. We don't see Paul trying to worry about himself or what he wants to do that day. We don't see him chasing down his own plans and priorities of life. We don't see him distracted by the world. Why? Because Paul understands to a faithful disciple of Christ, in a world that is all about me, in the Christian's life, it is all about he, right? And as cheesy as that sounds, I get it. I know the way that that just sounded. I almost didn't even put it in there. But think about it. Like, like what else would make sense for Paul, right? Like he understands that this life is not about him to the point where Paul open-handedly prays, God, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whatever it looks like, whatever the consequence is, wherever it takes me or does not take me, whether it leads me to wealth and happiness or whether it leads me to being in a prison or martyred or beaten or thrown out of the church in your name, wherever it looks like, I'm in. Because what else matters? He is joyfully submitted to the God who saved him. So suddenly... His earthly experiences don't lo- no longer matter, right? Because as they get worse for him humanly, if Paul's goal is God's presence, it gets better for him. He is experiencing God in new ways today that he was before he was in prison. And that is the goal of his life. So friends, before we even look at the rest of these marks, are we humbly submitted to God's plans and purposes? Does that describe us? Do we live like we're on our knees in this humble posture of prayer that we see from Paul? Where we say, God, whatever it looks like, I understand the implications of that, God. But whatever it looks like, I'm in. I want to do your will. I want to bring you glory. It's like you can look at Paul's life and he's like, what else would I say? Based on who you are, God, what would I say? So is that us? Can I share one thing with you before we leave this section? Something that burdens this pastor's heart as I look at the church today in America that says that you can have Christianity and still chase the American dream and not build God's kingdom. The Christianity that, that, that develops, um, I'm not saying at this church, but you all get the problem that I'm seeing right across America, that, that, that you can have people that say a prayer and want to be a Christian yet they walk out of these doors and live life just like the world does. The, the, the problem with that and what burdens my heart is that what you can count on is that God's going to give you the desire of your heart. We see it all throughout the Bible. And if our hearts, if our hearts desire things of the world more than God, to the point where we're chasing and we're believing the lies of the world, God's going to give us over to that desire. He's going to give us grace upon grace, and he's going to warn us. He's going to convict us. He's going to send Christians into our homes when we wonder why they're there to call us back into the faith. He's going to do some hard things in life and attempt to show us his goodness and his grace. But if the desires of our hearts don't change and they stay on the worldly things, God's going to give us over to that desire. And we're going to completely miss who he is. Is it true of us? 
Are we joyfully willing to lay down our lives? Did you get that from Paul's life? You don't have to read many of his epistles before you learn this is a joy for him to willingly surrender his life for the God that saved him. Are you joy, joyfully willing to walk away from worldly pursuits to do what God wants you to do and to live according to his plan and purposes? That's what a faithful disciple does. Are we going to do that? What does Jesus say? Say, okay, well, maybe that's Paul. Well, Jesus says, if you don't deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow me. You can't be my disciple. That sounds a lot harsher than what I'm saying Paul's saying, right? So this, this is a theme we see all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Bible, is that in response to who God is, the only response is faithful to submission to him. Second, second, what do we see? What is the second mark of a faithful disciple? Dependency upon the power of the Holy Spirit. We just sang about this too. Um, I'm convinced I sent Jason some of the slides and stuff, and he must have gone through there and picked out the best songs. But um, every one of those songs is just through all the text that we're talking about today. Um, and that worship was beautiful, by the way, wasn't it? Um, man, so good. Uh, so dependency upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Read 16 and 17 with me. That he would grant you, so this is the beginning of Paul's prayer, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Paul's not asking for the initial indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He already builds this theology out in chapter 1. Paul knows that these are Christians. These are saints. These are people that have already believed, surrendered, put their faith in God, trust Him for all of eternity, right? And so they have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So this is not what Paul's praying for. Thus, it must be different. So what is it? Paul is praying for a supernatural faith and trust in Christ for all things. And this is much different than simple head knowledge and faith in who God is. See, this is an unshakable, unwavering, again, supernatural trust. This is, there's nothing shallow about that. This is nothing that you can do on your own because, because he gives us two things. What are the, notice the two things Paul gives us about this faith. Look at it right there. Paul, it is a gift from God, right? What does he say? That he would grant you. And again, these are already Christians. So this is something else that he's calling on God to grant them. This isn't necessarily something that, that, that you become a Christian and you genuinely, I'm talking about you genuinely and sincerely come to faith in Christ and want to live for him and surrender your life to him. Amen. The next day, tragedy strikes, right? Life happens. The day Paul was on the road, blinded in a place, waiting to figure out what was happened, is a much different Paul than we see a couple years later right now. Right? Like God has done this supernatural work in him to grant him this supernatural faith and trust when it humanly doesn't make sense. When all else seems lost humanly, this is the gift from God we need as disciples. Right? Like we need to know way past in here, but we need to know like in here somewhere that God is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. The second thing you see there. It's got to come from the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why we say abide in the Spirit, depend upon the power of the Spirit. Because we see to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. So see this. This blows my mind. The source for trusting God is God. Right? You can't even trust God enough on your own. Amen? Right? 
If it was up to you, your trust would fail in an instant, right? But here's what you see. This glorious grace. What does what does Paul say in the beginning? Lavishing grace, grace upon grace. Here's the grace of salvation. You you see your sin, you call out for salvation. God saves you, he redeems you, and then he begins to build a trust in you that is far past anything that you could have ever imagined. This is what Paul's praying for for his people. You need God in order to trust God. And you see the beauty of who he is, the dependency that we need. That's why we use that word particularly and intentionally, dependency on the power of the Holy Spirit to give us this trust. See, all while Paul is being beaten and flogged and all the stuff we already talked about, he is clinging to the promises of God. He is holding tight that God is actually good and faithful, that God is actually going to bring him home into his presence, that heaven is real, right? And that God is good. And that God is going to work all things out for Paul's good and for his glory, right? Like, we got to know those things far past our head in order to believe those things when life happens. But think about the mission. Don't we need to believe who God is and what he does in order to do the mission of God? Because could we not, as Christians, look out at this world and see the evil and chaos and humanly wonder if God's really got this thing under control, if he's really holding us all. If he really is able and powerful enough to defeat death and sin. And praise God, we know that's true, but why? Because he has placed that in us. That is why the Bible says the world can look at all of these promises of God and see it as folly. But we must be strengthened in these things. Do you not want to grow in unshakable trust that God is who he says he is? And that every promise he makes to you, he's going to deliver on it. Do you not want that more alive in you? The picture of this type of faith, it's about Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. The, the root word there in the original text literally means like to be at home in. So, so think about that for just a second. So God, Paul's praying that God would give you power through his Holy Spirit so that, so that you can have so much faith and trust in Christ that Christ would literally be at home in every area of your life your thoughts, your actions, your motivations, that when anything hits you, it is all filtered before you think, before you react, before you do. Everything is filtered through faith and trust in Christ. So much that it permeates everything that you are and everything you do. Do you not want that to describe describe you? We must be on our knees praying for this. So I implore you, Carpenter's Way, you lean on the power of the Holy Spirit for life. You lean on the power of the Holy Spirit when things come in the highs of life, but also when the lows of life hit. When it feels like the worst thing the world can throw at us, this is the power we lean on. When heartbreaking tragedy enters our life, through many different reasons, this is the power we need. When sin or temptation seemingly won't leave us alone, And we feel covered and held down and enslaved to it. Do we not need the power to know that God has freed us from that? When we look out at the world and we see chaos and evil and hatred, do we not need to know that God's going to make all things right one day? The moments of life 
when we feel like we can't pick ourselves up off the floor, is this not the power that we want to carry us? A faithful disciple depends on this power every day. In the highs and in the lows. The third thing we see, desperation for the loving presence of God. You're going to love this part. Um, it, it floors me every time. The third mark, desperation for the loving presence of God. Read 17b through 19a with me real quick. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. So why would a faithful disciple be desperate to live in the presence of God every day? Why would this be so? Well, they understand what Paul's talking about in verse 19 when he says the love of Christ. Christians, fight this with every ounce of you, what I'm about to say. Don't be numb to the love of Christ. See, there's a danger that exists for the Christian that's been a Christian a while. We, begin, we can begin to take this love of Christ for granted. Okay? So just to make sure we're on the same page, every day we are not numb to the truth and, and we want to live in the love of Christ because this love of Christ was the same love that he looked down from heaven on a sinful people and he had all his glory, all his honor, all his dignity, everything that he deserves, right? And he's receiving nothing but worship and praise perfectly because that's where he is and he is in heaven and he looks down on sinful people and yet before time, he decides that this love is what's gonna propel him to leave that and to be born a man. And yes, he was sinless and yes, he was perfect, but he left a place where he was perfectly understood to be to a place where he was perfectly misunderstood. And he was beaten and he was mocked and he was tortured. He was misunderstood by the people that should have, that should have understood him the most, right? And he was tortured for you and for me. And a crown of thorns was placed on his head and he took the lashings on his back and then he hung on the cross, this sinless, perfect, spotless Messiah, Savior, God. Love is what held him to the cross. When, when people were mocking him and, and saying all these things about him that he knew to be true, that he could call it, he could have stopped it at any minute, but he willingly gave his life up so that you could be freed from sin and death. And when you place your faith and trust in that, you remember that it is the love of God that caused him to come and die, and it is the power of God that raised him from the dead. And the only thing you need to know is that God loves you that much, that he looked at you while you were an enemy of the cross, while you were his enemy, it says. Ephesians 1 says you were in darkness, and now you are in light. It says you were eternally separated from God. And what does it say in Ephesians 1? But by the blood of Christ... You've been brought near. Think about that for a second. Before the love of Christ, you were standing in the fire of eternal separation from God. Based on the love of Christ, you enter the throne room of grace and crawl up in a loving Father's lap. And His love for you is not based on how good you are or what you can do or what you can bring to the table. His love is you. Like I was encouraging my son as he was hearing some hateful things at school. God loves you because you're his. He loves you because he's good. And he's your maker. 
You don't have to bring anything to the table. In fact, you couldn't. What good news is this love? So what Paul says is this love of Christ that we've been talking about. What else would we need to know in this life? What else could we chase? You see, look look at what it says about this type of love. A faithful disciple is rooted in this love. The context here is thinking about like a thriving plant that is gaining all it needs from the the nutrient-rich soil that surrounds it. When you know the love of Christ like this, it roots you into a place where that's where your that's where your source of wealth comes from. That's where your source of needs and fulfillment and joy and happiness. That's where it comes from. That's what feeds you. It's not what this world says is important or what your flesh tells you you need to be like, right? That's sometimes worse than the world, right? It's also grounded. You're not just rooted. I can pick up a plant and throw it, right? Jesse could probably do that to a large tree, right? But it's grounded, right? Like a towering building firm upon its foundation against all the weather the world could throw at it. When you have this love of Christ in you and you dwell on that every day and you get what he's talking about here, you withstand anything this world could attempt to throw at you. And in that moment, you know you're just the building. If that foundation wasn't there, you would crumble in an instant. But when this is true, it's not over. Isn't that so good? He's not done talking yet, right? It says he may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. In other words, you begin to experience and grasp the overwhelming, immeasurable bigness of God's love for you in a way that you can't even comprehend what's happening right now. Far past head knowledge, he allows you to experience this love of Christ that surpasses human knowledge. Like you get his love here more than you can get it here, right? And you think about that, and you think about the times when you are so unfaithful to God, right? And you are an idiot, and you do things wrong, right? And again, like we talked about, God's not surprised. He knows you're a moron, right? Like, like he created you. He's not shocked, right? But, but, but we have these thoughts in our head where we let God down, and we sincerely don't want to, right? And we see our unfaithfulness compared to his faithfulness, and we don't understand why God could love us. But we know he does. We know it. We don't get it, but we know it. Isn't God good? Isn't he faithful? Lastly, we see the fourth mark of a faithful disciple. Constant growth towards spiritual maturity. As a faithful disciple, we must be ever-growing in what God is calling us to do. There at 19b, this phrase confuses a lot of people uh, with with good reason, um, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So we don't interpret Scripture in in reference to unclear Scripture, right? If something we wrestle with in the Bible, we take that back to clear Scripture, right? So uh, what that shows us, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, we know, we're promised that as the church, we are already filled with the fullness of God. We have that in us. So what's going on here? Paul is calling them to become already what they're supposed to be. Paul is calling them in a real way to be spiritually mature faithfuls of Christ. 
faithful disciples of Christ. See, the standard of level that we tend to judge our Christianity and discipleship off of is how well other people are doing, right? How well the world's doing. Well, at least I'm better than him, her. At least I don't do this, right? Like, I know I, know I don't do everything. I know I don't share the gospel like I should. But I'm not this, right? And we begin to put labels and we begin to rate our level of spiritual maturity based on human thought. And what, what this passage is calling us to is not to think like an immature Christian that says, how far can I get towards the line of sin and still be holy? How far can I dabble in this or that before God is not pleased with me or before I need to repent? How far can I go here? What's the level of things I need to do to be right with God? Like, I know I've been going to Carpenter's Way, and I'm pretty sure God's pleased with that. I do believe in him. I'm a sincere Christian. But, like, when it comes to sharing the gospel at work, I'm just not gifted in that. Right? I don't really know if I'm called to volunteer. Let me pray about that. You need to pray about that. Plug in. Right? All of those questions. A faithful disciple wonders, what sin do I need to kill so I can be more holy? What could I do with my life that could please God more in a way that brings glory and honor to Him? How could I bring glory to God with my family? See, the fullness of God is the measuring stick for what you are to be as a disciple. It's not what anybody else is doing or not doing. It's not what you see on memes or on Facebook or these TV preachers that get passed around on the internet. The the faithful stick... Is Christ. He wants you to gain what you are already supposed to be. What if we all looked like that here at Carpenter's Way? What if we were faithful disciples that were living in humble submission to God's plans and purposes to the point where we didn't care about worldly pursuits anymore? And what if we were all dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit for everything that we did? And what if we were desperate for God's loving presence? And what if we all had Christ as the measuring stick, and we're always growing and active and challenging each other and equipping each other to, to, to realize the fullness of what we're supposed to be in Christ. You see, all these huge churches all over the area, all over the world, yet, if Carpenter's Way, the people of Carpenter's Way would live that way, God could shake the nations with this church. Oh, what he's waiting to do amongst the Mid-County with a church like that. Oh, what he's waiting to do at your workplaces and the grocery stores and the places you work out, on your kids' baseball teams. Wherever God has you, let's be faithful disciples. I'm going to pray, and somebody's going to come up for an announcement. God, we know everything that we just talked about is far past anything that we could ever do on our own. And God, for specifically those right now that are maybe struggling to hold on to a promise of yours, God, maybe they're doubting their faith. Maybe they're asking questions due to hard situations in their lives. God, this this lesson on faithful discipleship is not meant to put us down. God, to remind us that faithful discipleship means we trust you more than our own thoughts and feelings. God, would you give us that trust in you? 
God, that instead of pushing us away when we have questions or when life is hard, God, that we would lean into biblical community. That the people here would lean into Carpenter's Way. God, as we point each other to God, we point each other to who you are. God, would you allow us to live as faithful disciples of yours? Not because we're good enough or smart enough or we can be creative enough or we can have the best pastors and elders and teachers and deacons and leaders and community group leaders, but because we are weak and you are strong. Because we, as faithful as we want to be, are unfaithful sometimes. And you are ever faithful. God, not because we matter in our little kingdoms, but because your glory matters. God, would you help us live this way? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.